Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, novelist Susanna Moore talks about her memoir, Miss Aluminum, and the re-release of her classic novel, In the Cut. Susanna Moore is the author of the novels The Life of Objects, The Big Girls, One Last Look, In the Cut, Sleeping Beauties, The Whiteness of Bones and My Old Sweetheart, and two books of non-fiction, Light Years, A Girlhood in Hawaii, and I myself have seen it, The Myth of Hawaii. She currently lives in New York City, and today we're going to be talking about Susanna's new book, which is a memoir, Miss Aluminum. Susanna, welcome to Little Atoms. Well, thank you, Neil. So, I've just said you've you've written a couple of non-fiction books about Hawaii, and you've written about your life, a fictionalised version of it, in novels. I want to talk about why now is the right time for this memoir. Well, ironically, I began it before the Me Too movement became prominent and well-known and important. Uh, So the timing was interesting because a lot of critics and readers have assumed, understandably, that that was motivation for my writing it, especially because there are retellings in the book of being raped and being molested and being beaten up. And so... It's logical that you might think that it was connected to that. It was happenstance. I've been encouraged for years to write about this period in my life and the 10 years that I was in Los Angeles, and I resisted it. I thought that I had written about it. I'd certainly written about my childhood in the first three novels that are about Hawaii and growing up there. But I, in some ways, I felt that I had caught up with myself in a way in the, in the sense of writing novels and that I might try it. I never knew when I was writing it how it would turn out, whether it would be any good, whether my editor would like it. And, uh, and it took about three years, and it turned out to be all right. We're going to go right back to those early years in Hawaii to start with. So I want to talk about, if we can, about your mother. Now, as you talk about in the book, your mother dies when you're 12 years old. Let's talk about what you remember of her. Well, I remember her very, very clearly. And because she was uh, perhaps unadvisedly prone to confide in me because she was so troubled and unstable, especially from the time I was 
probably eight, I became more of a friend and, and supporter and defender than probably was good for me in the end. But she was quite isolated there. She had grown up in Philadelphia, moving to Hawaii after the war with my father probably was difficult for her. Honolulu society was very closed, not that they were excluded, but it was very provincial and isolated. And she probably had no one, felt she had no one else but me, but I, to, in whom to confide. But of course I was too young, but I adored her, adored her, adored her. Now, obviously, your mother dying at such a young age is is a shock to anybody, but there had been, you know, she was depressed, there had been suicide attempts. Were you even able to understand as a young girl what was going on? I did understand as a young girl what was going on in so much as a young girl could understand. I think I was not caught between them because I, my father and mother, because I was so clearly on her side. Although it's interesting to me, always has been interesting to me, that I didn't turn against my father, given her not attempts to do so, but all that she told me about him and his behavior that would lead one to turn against him. But her death was very mysterious, as you know from reading the book, and I still, someone asked me yesterday, in fact, how she died, and I don't know. I'll never know, and I think one of the things I've learned growing up, getting wisdom, as I continue to do grow up, is that the not knowing is as valuable in its own way as knowing would be, and that I have to relinquish, which I have done, the need to know what happened to her. And so after your mother dies, your your father, eventually there's a, a stepmother comes along. It's not just yourself as well. You have four siblings at this time, and your father becomes more and more... Well, I was going to say distant, but neglectful is is not an unfair way to look at it. Tell me something about who your father was. My father was from an old Pennsylvania family, originally Quakers, big landowners. Uh, by the time that he was growing up, I doubt if they were still Quakers and their holdings and wealth had diminished. But he had a background that was very different from my mother's. And not he, because obviously he fell in love with her and married her. But his family behaved very badly to her because she was a she was poor, uh, she was Irish, and she was Catholic, right? And he became a doctor and was in Japan right after the war ended as part of the occupation. So I didn't meet my father until I was almost three years old. So I was alone with my mother in that period, which probably increased the bonding and the the mutual dependence that we shared. He was very charming. He was handsome, intelligent, a little bit, you know, uh, I think, again, it's a mystery. My brothers and sisters still, we still sit down when we're talking and say, what was, what, why did he behave the way he did? Why did he abandon us? And of course, in the years in which I've spent in the therapy growing up, one of the questions always has been, you know, his behavior. Why, why did he neglect us so and abandon us to this vicious stepmother? And how, how to account for it? We, I, I can't. I can't account for it. In regard to my father, I was thinking about him just this week because I teach a class at Princeton every fall, a seminar on 
really metaphor, but metaphor as seen in myth and fairy tales and science fiction even. And I, part of the lecture is the presence of fathers in fairy tales, all of whom are extremely passive and allow awful things to happen. If you think of Cinderella or Snow White or Hansel and Gretel, even given the presence of stepmothers who are in those fairy tales, the fathers are unusually passive and allow terrible, terrible things to happen to their children. And it put me in mind of my father again, that passivity, that willingness to relinquish, um, you can't call it care, but uh, relinquish the children to this other force, which is malignant, if not evil. And so you escape at 17 to your, your mother's mother, your maternal grandmother over in Philadelphia. And there's there's been, while you've been neglected by your father and stepmother in, in Hawaii, a neighbour who luckily has, has been looking out for you. And so while you're in Philadelphia, there be, this neighbour sends you a rather remarkable gift. Tell us about that. Well... Before my mother died, I, my family was friendly with Mr. and Mrs. Kaiser, Henry Kaiser and his wife, Allie, and I in particular was friends with her son, Michael. They, they were our next-door neighbors. And when my mother died, she was very, very kind to me and took me under her wing and often fed me and gave me food, which I would sneak back into my own house to give to my younger brothers and sisters. Because one of our stepmother's uh, practices was to starve us. And then when I left home with nothing, she knew that I had nothing and had left everything behind me. And so she sent me her, sent me clothes of her own that she no longer wanted and shoes and um, ski parkas and handbags and all very, very grand, all very expensive, all very beautiful, all a bit old for me you know they were all couture but it was all that I had so when I was 17 I was wearing her in Philadelphia was wearing her extraordinary clothes and later in New York and in fact even now I still have some of those clothes which I wear and what did the what did having those clothes mean what does that do for you well first of all it was very practical because I had nothing and my grandmother was poor and I had no money. My father gave me no money. But it was the clothes, as they had done for my mother, you know, 20 years earlier, became a kind of disguise and a kind of protection. Because when she was a young woman, my grandmother, my Irish grandmother, who had worked as a lady's maid for a um, rich woman in Chestnut Hill in Philadelphia, took the clothes that she inherited, had been given by her mistress and remade them, recut them, fitted them to my mother. So the irony is that when my father met my mother, he was a young doctor in medical school and she was in training to be a nurse. When he would take her out, she was wearing these extraordinary clothes that she too had inherited. So, And he thought she was someone other than she was. And by the time he found out that the clothes were not her own and that she was in fact this poor Irish Catholic girl, it was too late. So, again, the irony is that I was repeating, although not with an intention to disguise myself, as had been contrived by my mother and my grandmother, but out of necessity. But I, I again, was seen as someone other than who I was. 
because of these clothes, especially when I got to New York. So the book, one of the themes of, of the book is, you know, CG playing roles. I mean, obviously, sometimes literally you're an actress and a model and, and latterly a writer. Um, but as an outsider looking in a glamorous world, some of which we're going to talk about in a little while, the sort of perspective that you have on these worlds as an outsider sort of looking in and and I guess more generally the roles that, you know, women are expected to play in society. Tell me something about, you know, this idea in the book. Well, I hope I'm not playing a role as a writer. When you said that, it made me smile. Well, um, I meant as a fiction writer, perhaps. No, no, creating roles. I'm teasing you. Um, <laughs> the playing of roles was, you know, in a way, put upon me. Like, I played the role as when I was eight or nine of a mother, when I took care of my brothers and sisters, and my our mother was not able to do so because she would disappear periodically when she was, um, you know, put in the bin and then later as a model, role-playing, of course, and as an actress, you know, I, except for being a mother to my brothers and sisters, and even then, because I left them, I abandoned them when I was 17, I wasn't particularly good at it. You know, I was, I was a terrible actress. I mean, embarrassingly so, excruciatingly bad. As a model, I was always a bit uncomfortable, and I think it showed. Perhaps it didn't, but I felt that it showed. It was a way of surviving. You know, I was on my own so young, 17, with no resources, no money, no backing really except from Mrs. Kaiser, which was in fact extraordinary, and my grandmother who could do not too much except to love me. So I was, all of these disguises, all of these performances were really about surviving. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Susanna Moore, and we're talking about her memoir, Miss Aluminum. And Susanna, you mentioned Mrs. Kaiser, Ali Kaiser, and your grandmother, and obviously after after your mother's death, these people acted as sort of, you know, I guess surrogate mothers in a lot of ways, certainly more than your actual stepmother did. And eventually there's another woman that comes into your life that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Tell us something about Connie Wold. Yes, she was, there, there were, as became, I always knew it, but became very clear to me when I was writing the book. There was Ali Kaiser and then a woman named Mary Douglas, who, for whom I worked when I worked at Bergdorf's, and then my grandmother, of course, but Connie Wald. And then later, in a way, you could even say my my second husband, Dick Silbert, who was much older, was 20 years older than I was, and in many ways served as a kind of mother. But Connie, I met because I was, I had a first date with her son, and I would not go out with him unless he, uh, not unless, but he, he asked me to go out with him, and I said no, and then he asked me if he could take me to his mother's for dinner. And I, perhaps with some prescience, I suppose hearing the word mother did it, <laughs> I said yes. And she turned out to be a very uh, prominent, very powerful, very uh, influential Beverly Hills hostess whose uh, dinner parties were legendary. And she, who had two sons but no daughter, and I, who had no mother, obviously became very, very close. And I, I didn't live with her, but I might as well have, because I was with her every day. And during this period, parties hosted by Connie, um, but then also, you know, latterly with your, as you said, with your second husband, Dick Silbert, who's a, who was a Hollywood producer, the book's full of amazing stories about that sort of like late 60s, 70s Hollywood life. And so let's spend some time talking about that and... Well, I just want to just tell us some of your memories of... Um, let's talk about Joan Didion, first of all. You meet Joan and her husband at a, at a dinner party. I th- yes, I think they were there that first night at Connie's. I met them, and I became friends very quickly with John Gregory Dunn, who was married to Joan, who was more affable, more of an extrovert, uh, more, in a way, avid for uh, friendship than was Joan. And... I then began to be invited to their parties, which were um, famous in another way because they were more both literary and bohemian. They lived in an old house in Hollywood above the Sunset Strip. And then when they were going to Hawaii for a holiday, they asked me to house sit for them which I was happy to do. And then when they returned, they asked me to stay a while to... Um, actually, I'm not quite sure why they asked me to stay uh, for a while. Maybe to, as... Com- I don't know, but they did. And th- there I was. And so we became quite close and remain close. She is the godmother of my daughter. And later on, you worked for both Warren Beatty and, and Jack Nicholson. Well, th- again, through... Um, the Waltz, Connie's son, was an agent at the William Morris Agency, and there was a gentleman there who didn't work, wasn't uh, Warren's agent, but did small, was kind of a fix-it man, and uh, Warren needed a script reader, 
someone to read and analyze, type up the plots of scripts, and sometimes novels or articles even. And Robbie suggested that I uh, might apply for the job. So I went to see the man at William Morris, and he sent me to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, which was a block away where Warren lived in the penthouse. And I went there, and Warren was there with his friend Bob Town, Robert Town, who was a screenwriter, who later wrote Chinatown and other um, movies. And he interviewed me very briefly. I didn't, I didn't tell him I had never really had a serious job. I, or that I had not been to college. I just, uh, I said very little. At a certain point, he asked uh, he asked me who I knew in Hollywood, and he liked it very much that I knew the Duns. That got his attention. And then he asked to see my legs, which, <laughs> you know, now it seems, I, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to tell that, because it's just, it wouldn't happen now. Or if it did one might choose to be offended. But, you know, oddly or interestingly, I was not offended. I, I could see that it was amusing and awful at the same time. I lifted up, I was wearing a miniskirt of a few inches. I wasn't going to oblige him completely. And uh, he said, oh, can you start Monday? So that was how I got the job. I pointedly wanted to talk about this this period of time and described it as the sort of classic 70s glamour years um because as you've as you mentioned at the beginning this book has come out now in this sort of me too era after you know post harvey weinstein and you know someone else who stalks their way through this book is roman polanski for instance and you know, people like, you know, obviously Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty famously were womanizers at the time. Can we look back on that period of time, you know, those, what we all think of as those those sort of classic Hollywood years of glamour with the same eyes after the last couple of years, do you think? Well, you know, I've thought about this very much, obviously, as a woman and because of the heightened awareness of sexual abuse and harassment. And also because when I was writing the book, I had to think about it. And several of my friends and other people whom I respect have said, oh, well, you can't judge it in quite the same way, things that happened then, because we looked at things differently. And there is something about that excuse that that bothers me, and I'm, which I don't find sufficient, and because it doesn't go any deeper than that. I think, yes, things were different. But what was different was the powerlessness of women and the absolute meaninglessness, legally or even socially, of objecting to any of this. You know, if you were raped or attacked or beaten up or molested, there was really pretty much nothing you could do. The police wouldn't help you. Social services wouldn't particularly help you. I think older people would say, oh, that's just the way Hollywood is, get used to it. I think that's what was different, was that not not that we tolerated it, but that we were, there was nothing that could be done about it. And so we adapted to it, found it amusing, like I did with um, Warren asking me to show his legs, with what I did when I was raped by Cassini, that, and, and felt that it was my fault and knew that it was meaningless to go to the police. I would just be 
humiliated and shamed and called a liar. So I think what has changed is not sort of a kind of social awareness that these things are bad. We always knew they were bad. Rape was always bad. I think that we now have more power and feel less helpless. Along with the release of um, the publication of Miss Aluminum, um, there's also a new edition of In the Cut been released. Um, I'm holding in my hand now, and just looking at some of the you know the amazing quotes that are on my copy of of young writers loving this book, and I remember when this book came out back in '95, and it was. It was a you know a cause celebre for it so you know it's it's frank depiction of female desire, and I remember that happened again when the film came out and I wonder now again in the times that we live in now things have changed a lot, and I wonder how you think this book would have been received if it had been ri- if it was a new book now if you'd just written it I think it probably although it did well at the time. I'm not sure it was fully understood. I'm not sure even I fully understood what I had written. You know, I have spent a lot of time as a volunteer teaching in prison. Uh, One of my books is about a woman in prison, and uh, that incited in me such a horror and rage of male violence that it was that which propelled the writing of In the Cut, as well as a desire to do something different and to and to play with the form, to take a genre which was traditionally male, you know, a, a noir novel, detective story, sex, and to see if I could write it as a woman. I think what's different now is, again, that it's appreciated in a different way, again, because of the power that women have come to feel about themselves, their bodies, their desires, their sex lives, and their, also their more public repudiation of, of male violence. And that is, that is sort of what I hoped you would say, because it seems to me now that it's, you know, it's depiction of, of sexuality is perhaps more widespread now, but it's, it's critique of male violence, I think, is still something that's, that's unusual. You know, the fact that you tackle sort of head on that Freddie is navigating that world of male violence, I think, is still the thing that stands out more today than it's perhaps its frank depiction of sexuality does. Well, yes. And as you say, in part, because there's more sex and more books. But yes, and that was what that was what I was really trying to write about it. As I said, because of my experience in in prison and my growing awareness of what it was that was done to women. But, you know, something very interesting has has happened, and contrary, in a way, to what we have been talking about uh, in regard to the women's growing sense of power, which is that in a recent study done in uh, colleges across um, America, all kinds of colleges, of, of young men and young women, about what they would do if they were raped or harassed. And something like 66% of the respondents answered that they would not report it, that they would not go to the authorities at their institutions or to the police or to their parents, that they would not, that they would conceal it. And I, I was so disheartened and surprised by reading this. You know, so 
I suppose 66%, not I suppose, certainly 66% is better than probably the 96% that would have answered in the same way when I was growing up. But still, it's too high. So I've been talking to Susanna Moore. We've been talking about her memoir, Miss Aluminum, and at the end, uh, the novel In the Cut, which has also just been re-released, both from Weedenfeld and Nicholson in the UK. And I should say, even though I refuse to say it in the interview, that it is called Miss Aluminium in the UK. Um, Susanna, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Well, thank you so much, Neil. You're a good interviewer. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.